What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. Today is Tuesday, April 12th, aka the goat's birthday. Happy birthday, dad. I love you so much. I wouldn't be where I am without you and all of that good stuff. So definitely make sure that you guys are letting him know that you love and support him as well. Happy birthday, trap dad. I am sick again. (laughs) I am once again sick. And if you know me, this is like not a shocker, but my voice is going to be doing some fun stuff today, I am assuming. Um, I am I think it might be just like really bad allergies. I don't know. I felt like I had a fever there for a minute, but I'm feeling okay now. I've been taking my medicine and been fever free for like 24 hours, so that's good. But yeah, so just bear with me with the, the nasally mouth breathing kind of situation we've got going on. First, I want to give a shout out to my friend Nicole. She just put out her podcast Morbid Curiosity, a true crime podcast. So go give that a listen. We love to support our girlies. Um, give her a five-star rating. And look, she's, she's got five episodes out right now. Hell yeah. So definitely go give her a listen. Morbid Curiosity, a true crime podcast. Let me see if she's got any. Um, she has an Instagram. It's at morbid.curiosity.tcpodcast. And you can also email her at morbidcuriositypodcast at gmail.com. So definitely go check her out and stay spooky. I did also want to give a shout out to my girl, Katie. She stays hyping me up and supporting me, and I just fucking love her so much. She's truly a real one. She puts the podcast on to everyone, and she's always listening. So I wanted to give her a shout out. Her um, Instagram, she, she does everything related to beauty. So she does hair, massages, facials, all that kind of stuff. And she got my hair looking right. It looks so cute. I'm obsessed. Um, you can follow her at CLT Hair Fairy for hair and CLT Model because she's also a model because she's drop dead fucking gorgeous. Okay, um, so definitely go give her a follow. Get some of her services. She has the best prices and she's just super sweet. Um, I haven't posted anything of my hair yet because I've been fucking sick. So when you guys see my hair, you're gonna be like, oh my god, she was right. I have to go get my hair done. So once I'm not sick anymore, it's over for you bitches. Also, I have two days left on the Accutane, so once I'm not crusty anymore, it's over for you bitches, okay? <laughs> um, I think that's... Yeah, oh wait, stickers. To everyone who's purchased stickers from me, thank you so much for supporting my dream. I love you guys. I Stick them everywhere. I've been sticking them in, like, bathrooms, at bars. I don't even drink. <laughs> on like lamp posts downtown Charlotte, like wherever, just stick them places so people see them. Or put them wherever you want, on your car, on your little notebook. It's really up to you. But thank you so much again for that. And with that, I think I'm done with all the housekeeping stuff. So today's episode is gonna be fun, I think. Today's episode is about castration. So I'm going to give you guys kind of like an overview of what castration is in case you didn't know. And then we'll talk a little bit about the history of it and then castration as a kink. And then I want to tell you about like a story of castrations, which is actually what brought up this topic. My coworker, Michael, 
if you listen to this, Michael, I'm sorry, but he was like, I think this might be a good topic for your podcast. And he sent me like an Apple news link of this man who was arrested for performing castrations in his home. And I was like, that is so perfect for the podcast, but it wasn't enough to do just like one episode on. So I was like, we'll just talk about castration in general. So let's dive into it. So I went on Wikipedia as one does. And the first thing that it said was castration, not to be confused with penis removal or emasculation. And so I learned through all this research that these words are kind of used interchangeably, though they might not necessarily mean the same thing. It just kind of depends on the cultural context and whatever. So I'm going to get into what all that means. Castration is any action, surgical, chemical, or otherwise, by which an individual loses use of the testicles, the male gonad. Castration causes sterilization, preventing the castrated person or animal from reproducing. It also greatly reduces the production of hormones such as testosterone and estrogen. Emasculation is the removal of both the penis and the testicles, the external male sex organs. It differs from castration, which is the removal of the testicles only, although the terms are sometimes used interchangeably. The potential medical consequences of emasculation are more extensive than those associated with castration as the removal of the penis gives rise to a unique series of complications. This is all from Wikipedia. And then penis removal. In ancient civilizations, the removal of the human penis was sometimes used to demonstrate superiority or dominance over an enemy. Armies were sometimes known to sever the penises of their enemies to count the dead, as well as for trophies. So I think penis removal obviously can technically be, like, through castration or emasculation, but I think penis removal is referring to, like, this specific type, like, we're removing the penis as a dominant thing versus castration or emasculation could be for various reasons, which we will get into here in a minute. There's an old story that people tell about the origin of castration. The word castration has often been traced back to a medieval myth about beavers, whose Latin name is castor. Beavers were hunted to... Oh, I just heard Ruby meow. She, like, wants to come in here. Oh, Ruby. Hi, Ruby. Come here. Okay, sorry about that. Beavers were hunted to harvest sweet-smelling castorium from scent glands near the root of the penis. Purportedly, a cornered beaver would bite off its own scrotum and toss it to its pursuers to end the hunt. And that's from Psychology Today. What people think is the scrotum is, <laughs> is actually scent glands that dangle from the body. Their testes sit inside the belly cavity. So we as humans look at that and we're like, oh, that looks like my, my balls. So it must be their balls hanging outside of their body. But really, it's just the scent glands and their balls are inside of their bodies. So it, we just kind of misinterpreted what we were looking at. It was taken out of context. Come here, baby. You're going to get tangled. Ruby, you are the fuel that this podcast has run on. The first records of deliberate castration to produce eunuchs from the Sumerian city of Lagash date back some 4,000 years. So eunuchs are, and we'll talk about them a lot today, a man who has been castrated, especially in the past one employed to guard the women's living areas at an oriental court. So that's what you'll see if you just look up that word. But it has been used mainly just to describe men that don't that were castrated, men who had their balls removed. Um, and as we'll see, they, eunuchs ended up being used for a lot of different things. 
but I guess particularly they were used to guard women's living areas at some time. Okay, so this is from Weird History. According to legend, castration was a legal punishment in China from 2281 BCE, why did I say it like that, until around 600 CE. Castration has been used as a form of punishment and torture of prisoners and criminals. As a punishment, castration was deemed appropriate in the event of a revolt for adultery as an alternative to the death penalty and for political dissent. Castration in China included the removal of both the penis and testicles, so emasculation essentially. Both organs were cut off with a knife. However, some cultures, including the Chinese, created eunuchs and used them in armies. Like their Chinese counterparts, the Byzantine Empire used eunuchs as army commanders, court officials, churchmen, and high administrators. Castrated men were considered innocuous and useful in royal courts in Egypt, Persia, Greece, and Rome, but their use in China far outlasted their use in other cultures. But eunuchs didn't start off as officials and men of influence. During the reign of Xin Shui Huangdi, I looked that up, so bear with me, in the 3rd century BCE, men were castrated and enslaved for the purpose of building the emperor's elaborate tomb. So it's honestly a mixed bag. It's almost like our genitals don't need to affect what we do in our lives. Like, I was reading and it seems like they became kind of their own sort of class of person and they were used as like slaves in some places. And then, like I mentioned, as higher officials in other places. So they, their importance and roles in society varied through time. And I just think it's silly that it has to do with their castration status, essentially. Today, there are more castrated men alive than at any other point in history. As many as 600,000 men in North America are living as eunuchs for medical reasons, the vast majority afflicted with prostate cancer. And that was from Big Think. So, I mean, I guess that makes sense because now we know how to do it correctly. You know, we can do it to remove cancerous testes, then, like, why not? The next thing I want to mention is the Russian Skopsi, which I might do an episode on because there's a lot about it, but I thought this was interesting, so I just plopped it in here. The Russian Skopsi were a sect of Russian Orthodox Christians that began during the 18th century. The group's founder, Andrei Ivanov, previously a flagellant, castrated himself and 13 disciples in 1757. A flagellant is a person who subjects themselves or others to flogging, kinky, either as a religious discipline or for sexual gratification. And so back during this time, I'm assuming it was more for like the religious discipline and devotion. But, you know, we can't be sure. Ivanov was arrested and sent to Siberia where he died, but his followers kept the castration cult alive. The group's popularity and devotion to God through self-castration appealed to peasants in middling ranks of society, so, like, everyone was kind of interested in this. The male members of the group castrated themselves, and the female members removed their breasts. Early Christians also took to self-mutilation as a form of devotion. During the first three centuries of Christian expansion, devotees castrated themselves to prove their dedication to the faith, mostly due to one mention of the practice in the New Testament. Matthew 19.12 reads, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So many Christians took this literally, as they still do today. Not necessarily about castration. Well, maybe. I don't know. You know what I mean, just in general. 
early church writer Origen, from the years 185 to 251 CE, castrated himself and other Christians followed suit, the problem became so widespread that the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE addressed the issue. So everyone was just going crazy, cutting off their fucking everything down there. A wide range of offenses during the medieval period called for castration as a punishment, and generally they involved sex. The lex talionis, which is the law of retaliation whereby a punishment resembles the offense committed in kind and degree, was also common, so castration was an appropriate punishment for sexual assault. Some Germanic laws allowed men to castrate men that they had found with their wives. So if, like, your wife was cheating on you, you were legally allowed to castrate the man (laughs) if you walked in on them, which is kind of badass, but also I don't condone violence, so. In 1778, Thomas Jefferson wrote a revised law for the Commonwealth of Virginia, hoping to remove the death penalty from capital offenses. As the head of a committee tasked with revising all of Virginia's laws, the group proposed that whosoever shall be guilty of rape, polygamy, or sodomy with man or woman shall be punished. If a man by castration, if a woman by cutting through the cartilage of her nose a hole of one half inch diameter at the least. And this is from Weird History. And it also said that historians speculate that this was some form of lex talionis, but like, the nose? The nose is in comparison to a penis. Like, men have noses, and I'm pretty sure they could be like, my nose is different from my penis, so I don't really understand how you're, like, saying that that would be, like, an equal punishment. And I feel like that just goes to show, like, men don't know what's going on down there with women. <laughs> it's like the men can't find the clit joke, but, like, really bad. Like, oh, it must be in the nose. I would definitely have been, had a nose hole. <laughs> I would have, yeah, not for rape, but polygamy? Like, yeah, I definitely would have been punished with a big hole in my nose. That sucks. Castration has also been carried out on young boys before puberty to prevent their voices from breaking. Early castration blocks the radical size increase in the larynx that otherwise produces the characteristic Adam's apple of an adult man. After puberty, the total length of male vocal cords increases by 63%, whereas female vocal cords grow only half as much. In 1970, a British historian published a fascinating account of voice-breaking three centuries ago by examining data covering 20 years for members of Johann Sebastian Bach's choir in Leipzig. He found that the average age for voice-breaking was about 18. The usual age for castration to prevent this happening was 7 to 9 years old. Men castrated before puberty retain an unusual high-pitched singing voice broadly comparable to that of a soprano, mezzo-soprano, or contralto, but covering a strikingly wide range. That was from Psychology Today, and we're about to dive a little deeper into this weird thing that was going on back then. In drama class in, like, middle school, I learned that there were periods of time where women could not perform in theater or do musical performances, and that men would play both the roles of men and women. But a big chunk of what was missing in this information was that the women were replaced with castrati. And so I'll tell you a little bit about castrati now. And a castrati is a person who has been castrated and sings in like the Sistine Chapel or like these choirs that we're about to talk about. So the Vatican banned women from church choirs in the mid-16th century. So beginning in the mid-16th century and continuing until the early 1900s, this was an established feature in Baroque and classical music, and prominent composers such as 
Handel, Handel, I don't know, and Mozart specifically wrote roles for castrati, people who were castrated, into several operas and oratorios. In 1878, Pope Leo VIII prohibited employment of new castrati by the Roman Catholic Church, and Pope Pius X, I don't know, <laughs> pronounced an official end to the practice in 1903. The last castrato employed by the Vatican, Alessandro Moreschi, the Angel of Rome, sang in the Sistine Chapel Choir from 1883 to 1903. He actually passed away in 1922, so this is like not super old news. Moreschi was the only castrato to make solo recordings, and in a rare, spine-chilling recording from 1902, his soprano voice can be heard singing Gunod's arrangement of Bach's Ave Maria. So we all know that one. I was like, holy shit, that guy ain't have no balls. Oh my god, my dad just like figured out that you can face call people or video call people on Instagram and he keeps like accidentally doing it and I just got a notification. Hey dad. According to Weird History, castrati existed in Eastern Europe as early as the 5th century, but many later became celebrities of sorts when they performed in opera houses and the like. By the 18th and 19th centuries, Castrati were created by their parents or other family members to transform children who showed early singing skills into lifelong talents. So, yeah, their parents would make them be castrated. <laughs> their parents would have them castrated. Castrati supposedly happened through accidents, such as having been kicked, bitten, born deformed, or gored by wild boars. Although, really, parents were purposefully having their children's genitals removed to preserve their voices. So it's really fucked up. This isn't the first time that we've heard about genital mutilation in history. I mean, it happens all over the place, which is really sad. I mean, you could even, circumcision is essentially genital mutilation. And I know a lot of countries do female genital mutilation. So I'm not saying that that's okay at all. Like, I don't think it's okay. I think we should just let our genitals like do their fucking thing and like grow up a little bit about that. But yeah, I just thought that was really sad. They were like, oh, this little boy has a good singing voice. Like, let's just snip his balls. I also saw this. It's pretty difficult to measure the effects that being castrated has on the body because it's not super common. And back when it was more common, we didn't have as much medical knowledge as we do now. But it is known that castration from an early age can have an effect on the rest of the body's development. And so we've like dug up some old bodies, I guess, that we knew were castrated, and noticed that long limb bones, incomplete bone fusion, and low bone density, aka osteoporosis, are some of the side effects of castration. An examination of the skeleton of a castrated, castrated person showed that the front end of the skull cap was severely affected by hyperostosis frontalis interna, a condition in which the inner surface of the frontal bones is symmetrically thickened. This is quite common in postmenopausal women, but rare in men. So I thought that was really interesting that, like, the way our hormones work affects our bone development. And especially for postmenopausal women, like, older, so older, so older, so much older and later in your life, you kind of think that you're done developing and then your sexual hormones don't work anymore. Suddenly now your frontal bones are symmetrically thickened. Like, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. Some of you may know who Alan Matheson Turing is. He was born in 1912 and died in 1954, and he was an English mathematician, computer scientist, 
logician, cryptanalyst, philosopher, and theoretical biologist. Turing was highly influential in the development of theoretical computer science, providing a formalization of the concepts of algorithm and computation with the Turing machine, which can be considered a model of general-purpose computer. Which, holy shit, our last episode, Martin Shkreli's company, his second one that he owned was called Turing. I wonder if it was like an homage to him or something. He is widely considered to be the father of theoretical computer science and artificial intelligence. Turing was prosecuted in 1952 for homosexual acts. He accepted hormone treatment with DES, a procedure commonly referred to as chemical castration, as an alternative to prison. In 2009, following an internet campaign, British Prime Minister Gordon Brown made an official public apology on behalf of the British government for the, quote, appalling way Turing was treated. Queen Elizabeth II granted a posthumous pardon in 2013. The term Alan Turing Law is now used informally to refer to a 2017 law in the UK that retroactively pardoned men cautioned or convicted under historical legislation that outlawed homosexual acts. So, like, I get the point of, like, why they're doing that, but it's like, fuck you. (laughs) And I was reading, and it seems like a lot of, I don't know exactly, it's like every state is a little bit different, but there's a lot of states where they've tried to make that, like, a thing for sexual predators, because apparently it, like, if they do chemical castration, it lowers their sex drive and makes them, like, less likely to actually act on it. I don't know how I feel about that. But I guess if it's voluntary, like, I don't see why not. I feel like with the chemical castration, it might affect people differently. Like, people have different bodies and hormones and whatever. I mean, we all have the same hormones, but levels, you know what I mean? So that was kind of, like, an overview of castration. Now I want to talk about castration as a kink. And we'll start with the cult of Cybele. The cult of Cybele was sanctioned as official by the Roman Senate during the formative years of the Roman Republic. There are varying stories of the goddess Cybele, and there are many different versions of how this story begins, including Zeus jacking off onto Cybele and impregnating her with the hermaphroditic Agdestis. The gods promptly castrated Agdestis out of fear and buried the penis, which became an almond tree that impregnated a river nymph who then birthed Addis. So that's a lot, but it seems very on brand. And I got this from Cult Nation. The gist of the story, though, is that Cybele fell in love with the most beautiful man on earth named Addis. See how that came full circle? And he promised to be with her, but then he fell in love with a mortal woman who he was planning to marry. So Cybele basically crashes the wedding. She's fucking pissed off. She's jealous. She drives everyone literally insane with her jealousy. And as a result of his insanity, Addis castrates himself and bleeds out until he dies. But then Cybele pleads with Zeus to resurrect Addis, and he came back to life as her faithful lover. Alas, the ultimate femdom was born. So I I read this article in Cult Nation, and they spoke with an anonymous male submissive about their castration fantasies, and I thought this was really interesting. It's a bit long. I am going to read it to you because I just think you should hear all of it. Yeah, so just buckle up. So here is the statement from the anonymous male submissive. The notion of genital-slash-gender punishment as an element of a femdom relationship was something that surfaced very early in my sexual psyche, definitely prepubescent. It wasn't until my late teens, early 20s that the notion of actual castration began to infiltrate my fantasy set 
and later still when the bridge was crossed into castration play, that potentially risked the actual thing. While I've done deep dives into myself to see if I can find a place the notion came from initially, I've never succeeded in finding one and no longer really bother wondering the why and where of it all. The biggest moment in this element of my journey wasn't my own fantasies, but when a partner revealed their own desire to castrate me in the heat of the moment, validating me in a way few had done prior. The core for me is always one of power exchange, of surrender and transformation. What I find interesting is that the two longest-held fantasies of mine, while similar in the power exchange of the thing, could not be more different in tone. The first, and still greatest, castration fantasy I've came fully formed, like Athena, in my late teens. In it, I am finally being collared by my dominant in front of a group of her femdom peers, and after receiving it, she asks me for a totem of our dynamic in return. It's then when I am secured to a medical table, angled for the group, and two of the other dominants, surgeon and nurse, proceed to castrate me in front of the group, an artisan turning my testes into earrings for my dominant as they suture my empty sack back up. In the other longest-running fantasy, I am one of dozens of thralls at a femdom ranch, and as part of my intake, I am branded and castrated, one of many in a long, ongoing line, chattel for my betters. The first is incredibly personal and intimate. The second is cold and anonymous. Yet they both came within relative moments of each other, have lasted for years, and reflect that deep core need for me, sacrifice to the dynamic, rejection, and transformation of self for pleasure of partner. Being a rack, risk-aware consensual kink player, the legitimate high-risk nature of the play is a rush, both for myself as a castration fantasist and as a submissive looking to please a sadistic and dominant partner. Like some other areas of my play, it's a relatively small pool, so it's a great thrill to be able to provide that particular scratch to those with the itch. The flip side to the risk is the depth of trust required to swim with someone in those waters. Whether it's a blade or a band, there's a lot that can go wrong, quickly and catastrophically, and to find partners with whom the trust level is there to even play to that risk is really invigorating and rewarding. As for the notion of literal castration, the attraction for me comes from one of my driving submissive desires, which is to transform from my dominant, changing my nature, temporarily or permanently, to please my dominant, to become closer to their ideal for a slub or slave, is one of my prime motivators and desires. Playing with a lot of sadists, female, suprem female supremacists, and misandrists, castration is a notion that tends to crop up, either as a threat or a goal that has, over time, increased my own draw to it conceptually. All of that said, castration, fantasy or play, tends to be something that I communicate as a limit to partners until we have been playing for a long time, and it becomes clear that our takes on something that that risky are aligned. So I just really loved the way that they wrote this. It felt very eloquent. I loved that at the beginning they were like, you know, I really wanted to try and understand why I had these urges and where this came from in my life. But then I just realized that it doesn't really matter. And they kind of just accepted who they are and like moved past it and found better ways to live out their fantasy in a safe way without hurting anybody. And I love the way that they dove into like playing with rack, being a risk aware consensual kink person and the kind of trust that comes into 
carrying out these activities. Because as we'll see later when I start to talk about the man who is performing these castrations, it doesn't seem like there was a lot of trust involved. And I know a lot of my listeners are probably thinking like, this is crazy. Why would anybody have these fantasies? But it kind of reminds me a little bit of the cannibal chat room episode where some people take things very far to an extreme and they live them out and they do them. And some people just fantasize about them. And I think as long as everybody's doing it in a safe way, then it's fine. I feel like a lot of times our society shuns people for their thoughts and fantasies and all that good stuff when there's nothing really wrong with it. I mean, we live in a world where like we have so much stuff accessible to us from the computer that we can just look at. We see so many things and we're literally evolving exponentially, I think, um, because of this, because we see so many things. It's like we just we're desensitized to so many things because we see so many things. And so it it's not really that crazy that people have these perspectives on their sexuality and what they want. And I think it also has a a little bit to do with our gender identities. Like I think now people are becoming more and more accepting of different gender identities. You look back at like ancient civilizations and gender has always been fluid and we just kind of put ourselves into these this weird binary that now is no longer really necessary. It never was necessary, but I feel like it's more acceptable now. Like people are exploring their gender identities differently. So I think castration is just an extreme form of, or like desiring castration can be an extreme form of that kind of self-expression. I read an AMA on Reddit of someone who was very uncomfortable with their desire to be castrated. He described it as having a paraphilia toward emasculation, being humiliated by women and sexual frustration, which is all very common, especially in the BDSM community. So that's not really a big deal. He said that he has always felt this way since he was like nine or 10 and that it was tearing him apart because while it's his fetish, castration is also his greatest phobia. And it was really sad. I was like, I really hope that he's okay. I mean, this was, he posted this on Reddit like 11 years ago and for a while he was responding to the AMAs, but not um, all of them, but it just kind of broke my heart that he was like, it's tearing me apart. I don't know what to do. The theory that he discussed is that the mind can make threats safe by turning them into things we desire. And I was like, holy shit, mind blown. The theory is that the mind can make threats safe by turning them into things we desire. I feel like I really relate to that one because I'm such an anxious person. I'm a big worry wart. My grandmother was a very worried person. And then, like, my dad was a very not worried person. And growing up, I felt like there were tons of things that we should be worrying about that we weren't. And so I'm very much a worried person. I'm very much an anxious person. And I try every day to not be. But then I also find myself drawn to activities that I know are going to make me anxious or, like, things that are, like, adrenaline rushes or just maybe, like, risky behavior in general it's kind of this like dichotomy of like playing it safe and then like risking it all. And sometimes I tell myself like, that's what life's about. <laughs> like what else am I here for? And so I felt like that kind of resonated with me in a weird way. But the people on this AMA replying were actually very nice. Some people were obviously rude and thought he was weird. There was nothing that was like, 
you're a fucking freak. It was mainly just people being like, um, you need to get help and stop feeding into this, blah, 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 blah. But one person recommended that he find a professional dom who could help him live out his fantasies in a safe way. And I loved that. I was like, fuck yeah. First of all, support the doms, support sex workers. Second of all, like this person is feeling so bad about themselves and like they, it just broke my heart. So to see this person being like, hey, like you could totally explore this in a safe way. And then the person's response, it was so sweet. Um, Then they stated like, as long as no one gets hurt, there's nothing to be embarrassed or ashamed of. And I loved that. I think that's like the, the big overarching theme of like this topic and a lot of topics I like to talk about on the podcast is like, as long as you're not hurting anybody and no one's hurting you in a certain way, wink, wink, then like, it's fine. You're not doing anything wrong. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. Like, back to what I was saying, like, with us shunning people in society, like, if we don't allow people to explore the things that they think about all the time and the things that really get them going, then they're gonna sit alone in their room and, like, wonder why something's wrong with them and, like, feel guilt and shame when really there are so many people in this world that have weird, air quotes around weird, I mean, this one's weird. I won't lie. But like, you know what I mean? They have, everyone has their interests and there's other people in the world who think the same thing as you. Like, no offense, but like, we're not original. No one is thinking of the first thought ever. Like, he's not the first person to think of (laughs) being castrated. There's a whole community out there of people that want to be castrated. And there's doms who will play that out with you and do it in a safe place. And like, some people even go as far as actually getting castrated. So I think that this person responding to their AMA was really helpful. And they even responded back and like quoted one of the lines that they said. And they were like, I really needed to hear this because I've felt so alone for so long. And now I feel a little bit better about my fetish. And I just loved that. I mean, there's some really interesting content out there on Reddit and Quora about castration. People get really upset about it. I'm like, why does it affect you? Like it doesn't, you just came on here to be mean. There's also a thought catalog article where 18 women discuss their castration fantasies, and it's just a lot to take in. I was like, I'm not putting this in the episode because I don't even, it's just like women saying some crazy shit, and I had no way to segue into it or out of it, but I just thought I would put it out there because there's a lot of weird content out there on the internet for this kind of stuff. Um, It's just kind of, it's almost like people watching in a sense of just seeing what people think and say and all their different opinions. And it's interesting, like, some people have opinions on things that don't even affect them in any way, but we already knew that. People will say things, like, on these forums and stuff, you're a fucking freak. Why the hell would you think about something like that? You seriously need to get help. And it's like, okay, yeah, everyone could talk to a therapist, but also there's a whole community of people that are interested in this and, like, that doesn't really make them a freak. Or maybe it does and we can reclaim the word freak like we did with queer, but... It's just like, why, why, first of all, why are you on a castration forum if you fucking hate castration? Answer me that one. So I saw this, I guess, scientific article called A Passion for Castration, characterizing men who are fascinated with castration but have not been castrated by Leslie F. Roberts, Michelle A. Brett, Thomas W. Johnson, and Richard J. Wassershug is a study, this is a study that took a look at why men have castration ideations. I personally think that some people just like what they like, hence the kinky BDSM community. We've just, again, created this society that thinks that people having strange sexual fantasies is out of the norm, 
I think it's really important that we let people explore these thoughts and fantasies. We would have a lot less shame and embarrassment and people could work through things without having to do it in private, which can be dangerous mentally and physically. Um, especially when we're talking about castration, that can be extremely dangerous. But anyway, so the study, I kind of like, so I wasn't able to actually read the journal because it was one of those things where it was like, you have to pay for it. So I just like read the abstract. And so this is like a quote from it. And I, um, I took out some stuff. I just kind of like paraphrased it. Many only fantasize about castration. Others actualize their fantasies. These authors wanted to identify factors that distinguish those who merely fantasize about being castrated from those who are at the greatest risk of general mutilation. 731 individuals who were not castrated responded to a survey posted on eunuch.org. We compared the responses, and by we, this is the authors, we compared the responses of these, quote, wannabes, so they refer to the people who, like, want to be castrated but haven't as wannabes, to those of 92 men who were voluntarily castrated and responded to a companion survey. Respondents answered the questionnaire items relating to demographics, origin of interest in castration, and ambition toward eunuchdom. Two categories of wannabes emerged. A large proportion, approximately 40% of wannabes, interest in castration was singularly of a fetishistic nature, and these men appeared to be at a relatively low risk of irreversible genital mutilation. Approximately 20% of the men, however, appeared to be at great risk of genital mutilation. They showed a greater desire to reduce libido, change their genital appearance, transition out of male, and prevent sexually offensive behavior. 19% of all wannabes have attempted self-castration, yet only 10% have sought medical assistance. Castration ideations fall under several categories of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fourth edition, most notably a gender identity disorder and body integrity disorder. And so we're in the fifth edition now. The conclusion that they made was that physicians need to be aware of males who have strong desires for emasculation without a transgender identity, because then they could be putting themselves in danger and self-harming. So the wording of it is a little bit like, I think this was, I don't remember what year this was. I'm pretty sure it was like a while ago, like 2008. So some of the like things that they had in there were a little outdated. So I tried to like, like they had, they were using like transsexual and like, I know we don't use that word anymore. Um, but I think what they were getting at was just like, you know, obviously we have more gender identities today that are emerging. And so we have to be conscious of whether a person who wants to be castrated is just wanting to change their gender identity to, or their physical body to align with their gender identity, or if these people are like just want to castrate as a form of self harm. Because you have to make the distinction so that you can make sure that you're protecting people so that they aren't hurting themselves. Because if someone just wants to self harm and they try to cut off their balls, they could kill themselves. And someone who just wants to align their body with their gender identity just needs the right resources. They both need the right resources. One needs a lot more <laughs> help in like the realm of hopefully not hurting themselves. So I looked a little bit more into this. I hadn't really thought about the way that medicine would look at this kind of fantasy. And then it makes me wonder how this could be extrapolated to other kinky BDSM sort of fantasies. Like why do people like to be spanked so much? And why do people like blood play and knife play? And why do people like hot wax? Like I feel like if you're going to say that wanting to be castrated could be a form of, like, mental health disorder of sorts, then so could all of the other things. 
But so there is technically a condition for this. It's called Scoptic Syndrome. And I got, I'm going to read you like a big bit of it that I got from Wikipedia. So Scoptic Syndrome is a condition in which a person is preoccupied with or engages in genital self-mutilation, such as castration, penectomy, or clitorodectomy. The definition of Scoptic Syndrome is a gender dysphoria found under the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The fourth one, again, we're at the fifth. Scoptic syndrome can sometimes be motivated by intense sexual guilt in which the genitals become identified as the source of guilt-inducing sexual desire. This leads to desire for removal of or damage to the genitals. So I think this one is very specific as opposed to just people who are just interested in this. There is also evidence that voluntary castration is used in modern societies for reasons such as control of libido, body modification, which... A lot of people do body mods now, like some women just have their boobs removed, so why not just, why can't men just have their testes removed without anyone getting upset? There's a girl on, or I don't know what their pronouns are, so let me just say they, them, but they had breasts and they removed them on TikTok and everyone was like, what the heck? And they seemed pretty happy about it. They were like, I just don't want boobs on my chest. And then in some cases of extreme sexual masochism for purposes of sexual excitement, the body dysmorphic disorder or dysmorphophobia characterized by desire to be a eunuch is called Scoptic Syndrome, named after the Scopsy sect, which is what we talked about earlier, the Russian cult that did the genital mutilation, so that's what this name came from. However, Scoptic Syndrome is not in DSM-5, and it's virtually unknown in psychological literature, so I think we're moving away from this. The term is not applicable to all people with a desire for castration due to the highly diverse nature of reasons for volunteer castration. Castration has a history up to modern age of therapeutic use. According to Victor T. Cheney and his castration advantages and disadvantages, castration has been documented to effectively reduce symptoms in people with schizophrenia, psychosis, violent behaviors, paraphilias, mania, overactive libido, baldness, sleep apnea, and prostate disorders, all things that are exacerbated by testosterone, as well as reducing the incidence of various sexually transmitted diseases, duh, by means of eliminated or reduced sexual activity. So it's kind of like, all right, obviously, like, that's going, if those things are all exacerbated by testosterone, obviously removing the testes is going to help that. Some men seek relief from physical or psychological problems. Others derive sexual excitement from the idea of being castrated or otherwise having their genitals mutilated, usually by another person. According to a June 12, 2002 article in the Detroit Free Press, Self-castrations tend to be more common than leaving the job to someone else, said Dr. Dana Ohl, a urologist at the University of Michigan Medical Center, who has operated on those who have botched amateur castrations. Usually when these people just chop their own testicles off, they don't pay attention to the blood supply, he said. I think the reason this isn't in the DSM-5 is because it's a very big umbrella term, and I feel like it probably has wanting to castrate yourself in a way that's not like just a kinky fantasy that you have, but more just like you want to cut them off as uh, aside from like trying to alleviate cancer or like some other like prostate disorders or whatever it might be causing, or just wanting to satisfy like a body mod that you want. Like maybe you just don't want a penis anymore. I think aside from those and sexual gratification, if people are just wanting to castrate themselves for the sake of castrating themselves, it's probably just lumped in as a form of self-harm and there might be like a greater issue at play other than it just being purely I want to castrate myself. So I just thought it was interesting. I thought I would bring it up, but it seems like it's um, a little bit dated. And I just thought it was weird that like they tried to lump it in with being like gender dysphoric. 
According to kinkley.com, a survey conducted on a castration fetish website in 2008 found that 20% of respondents had extreme desires to live out their fantasies, and 19% of those had attempted self-castration. So I think it's very dangerous to do it yourself, but it seems like that's happening a lot more than at least I would have ever imagined. So I guess if you're thinking of castrating yourself, please seek medical help with that. (laughs) I think with that, I'm ready to talk about the man I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the electrician who was performing castrations on his kitchen table at his home in Germany. Horst B. is what we're going to call him because his identity has been protected. I tried to look up what Horst meant in German, and it didn't translate to anything in English. So I don't know if it's like, like Horst B. is like his, like a abbreviation of his name, or if it's what we would call like a suspect, or I don't know. But anyway, we're going to call him Horst B. So Horst B. is a 67-year-old electrician who performed castrations in his home on his kitchen table between July of 2018 and March of 2020. After the death of his wife, Horst was in debt and began browsing BDSM websites where he would offer electroplay and impact play services. So electroplay is when you use toys that use electricity for sexual stimulation, such as neon wands, violet wands, and TENS units. Look it up. You'll thank me later. The best way I can describe this, if if you don't want to look it up, is do you remember back in like, I said that so fast. Do you remember back in like the early 2000s when we had those like little, (laughs) I almost said little balls and I'm like, I feel like that's like not the best way to say this for this episode. It's almost like a snow globe, but it's like an electric thing and you put your hand on it and all those little like lights shoot to your hands. Think of something like that, but you can actually feel like the electric part on your skin and it like gives you goosebumps and it like kind of tickles and almost hurts a little bit, but like it mainly just kind of like tickles and feels nice. So that's electroplay. And then impact play is a human sexual practice in which one person is struck, usually repeatedly, by another person for the gratification of either or both parties, which may or may not be sexual in nature. And both of these types of play fall under the BDSM umbrella. So for impact play, think of like paddles, whips, floggers, all that good stuff. It's the stuff, ooh, it's the stuff that you think of when you're like, when people bring up BDSM and you imagine like a, a woman dressed in like latex and she's got like a paddle and she's like, bend over. Yeah, that's impact play. So that's what Horst was doing. He was offering these services to people. He was basically being a pro dom and getting paid for these services. But Horst wanted to move on to something that would make him more money, and he discovered that castrations were in demand. So according to Pink News, Horst advertised himself online as a professional trained doctor, which helped him to stand out in forums where others were offering so-called treatments with gardening shears. I also saw when I, that reminds me, when I was looking at the Cult of Cybele, there's like a specific tool, I guess is the word I'm looking for, that they would use and the cult that the cult would use. (laughs) I'm okay, I promise. I'll post a picture of it, but it looks really scary. I think the picture that I saw of it was like really rusty and gross. Yeah, don't use those tools. Don't use gardening shears. God, don't use gardening shears. I don't even have balls and I'm like, but anyways, Horst said that in reality, he had done like just a bunch of research online and learned how to do it. And he also said that he watched two castrations done at a hospital, which I'm like, how? Like, 
I don't know what he means. Does does he mean that he watched videos of them doing it in the hospital or that he actually watched them live in the hospital? I wasn't able to figure that one out. But anyways, that's what he said. So he also learned how to do stitches and how to stop the bleeding online, and he collected surgical instruments and narcotics to prepare. His first operation was done on the kitchen table, and he was paid around $1,300 in U.S. dollars. For his first seven victims, he removed their testicles, and for the eighth, he also partially severed their penis. One of the victims, however, deteriorated after the operation and died. Concerned that he would lose his source of income, Horst hid the man's body in a box and attempted to dispose of it. However, it was discovered by police three weeks later and later led to his arrest. So that was from Pink News as well. And this next part too. Horsby initially faced a murder charge, which he denied, for failing to help the man, although he admitted to performing the operations. The murder charge was eventually dropped and he was convicted of aggravated, dangerous, and simple assault. He was sentenced to eight years and six months in prison. The court took into consideration that the people who underwent the surgeries went there voluntarily, like they sought out the procedure. One wanted to become a eunuch, another thought the operation would cure an addiction to porn, and a third underwent the operation as part of affirming their gender identity. All valid, I guess. It's a tricky situation. It comes back to that argument of, like, that we talked about in McCamey Manor in the cannibal chat rooms, like, should consenting adults be able to do these kinds of things if they want to? Let me know what you guys think. I'm kind of on the fence about it. I mean, I want people to be safe and do it the right way. And, like, obviously he was not being safe. But, like, not everyone wants to go have it done at, like, a hospital. And I don't even know, like, what are the what are the laws about that? Like, can I just go, if I was a man, can I just go to the hospital and be like, please remove my testes? I mean, I guess you could. You can do that with your boobs. For some people it might be sexual, so then maybe it's not, like, sexual for them. I think he probably would have kept going, too, if this person hadn't died. Oh, my God, yeah. that See, that's the, that's the part where it's fucked up, <laughs> where the person died and he just tried to hide the body. I, there's another man that I found while I was doing some research, and so I titled this section of my notes, Florida Man Castration. So in 2019, two men in Florida met on a dark web eunuch fetish website. Cops arrived on the scene of their castration after receiving a 911 hang-up call. 74-year-old Gary Van Ryswick told the deputy that he had just performed a castration on a man. The Highlands County Sheriff's Office made a Facebook post about the arrest, and they could not stop with the puns. It's so funny. I'm going to link it. I was like, dude, can you guys chill out? They said, this one is a little dot dot dot, let's just say sensitive. You could even say it's kind of nuts. And they also said, these next parts are in quotes, To say the least, Van Ryswick had dropped the ball on this one. Inside the home, they found a man bleeding profusely on a bed with a blood-soaked towel covering his groin. Nearby, there was a pink container which held two body parts that had recently been much closer to the victim. Excuse me? Can you take it seriously for a second? This man was just castrated and y'all are making, like, dick jokes. But it was kind of funny. Van Ryswick told the victim that he had experience on animals and had even removed one of his own testicles in 2012. I don't know if they were able to substantiate this, like whether he only had one testicle or not, but he told deputies that he had tried to perform the procedure on the victim a week earlier, but when he tried to sanitize the area, something came up, so the procedure had to be delayed. Something came up? Is that another dick joke? And why would that delay the procedure? Like, just let it go down. (laughs) 
He also said that he had done a similar procedure on a man in a local motel a few years ago that turned out pretty much like this one, but couldn't remember the other man's name. The man went to the hospital, but law enforcement was not notified. Van Ryswick was arrested and charged with practicing medicine without a license, resulting in bodily injury, a second-degree felony, and his bond was set at $250,000. Also random, but I saw this while researching, and it's, like, I guess relevant because current events. Ukrainian frontline medic has recently apologized because he declared that Russian prisoners of war would be castrated on national television. Since Russia's invasion, the Ukrainian military has not been shy about sharing gory details about Russian troops that they've captured and killed, and the latest news of this military medic's directive to castrate Russian soldiers has backfired. So this is from Newsweek. Genady Drozenko, 49, the owner of a war zone mobile hospital in eastern Ukraine, said that he instructed his medical staff to castrate captured Russian soldiers because they were cockroaches and not people. So apparently Drozenko... Druzenko was a constitutional lawyer, and now he's a volunteer frontline medic. And he apologized. He got a ton of death threats after making this statement. He went on Facebook to do like an accountability post, whatever. And he basically took back his words and he sent in a screenshot of a threat that he had received. And he said that his hospital does not castrate anyone and is not going to. Those were the emotions. I'm sorry. We are saving lives, period. And the Russian investigative committee actually opened a criminal case into the comments that were made by him, and he could potentially face trial under Russian law. But basically, his excuse was that he had received threats against his family directly, and that was, like, why he said that. But it was taken out of context, apparently, and propagated by Russian propaganda channels. Which I get, like, you say things in the heat of the moment, but I don't really know if that can be taken out of context. Like, just saying you're going to castrate prisoners of war like it just I don't know I don't really think that can be taken out of context but I just thought I would throw that in there since the world is going crazy right now but that's all I have for you guys on castration probably could have done some more research on it too but I was like (laughs) I don't think we need to know all the gory details about castration so with that I guess we'll wrap up today. Um, Thank you all for listening so much. I don't think I have any more news to share with you guys. I have some guests coming up in the next few weeks, so just be on the lookout. And let me know if you want to buy a sticker. You can follow us at ProfSkep Podcast. That's P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And you can email me at ProfessionalSkepticismPodcast at gmail.com. And that's a wrap. Stay sus skeptics. Love you. Bye.